the pandemic of 2020 brought cross-border health into sharp relief. Because many times our politicians said, well, this virus knows no borders. The World Health Organization told us this virus knows no borders. But it very quickly became apparent that indeed on the island of Ireland, this, this virus did know borders and there were borders and that both our political systems were acting uh, independently, it appeared, of each other. Welcome to the first Aaron's podcast. Aaron stands for Analyzing and Researching Ireland's North and South. My name is Rory Montgomery, and I'm a member of the Aaron's Steering Committee. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Deirdre Heenan, Professor of Social Policy at the University of Ulster, who has written on cross-border cooperation, health in Ireland. One of the features of Aaron's is that together with every article, we published at least one response by another expert in the field. The response to Professor Heenan's article was by Dr. Anne Matthews, Professor of Nursing, Psychotherapy and Community Health at Dublin City University, who is also with me today. You're both very welcome. Maybe I'll kick off with you, dear Heenan, uh, and you can give us perhaps a, a quick overview of the main points uh, in, your, in your article. So I suppose in terms of cross-border health, um, We've been writing around and talking around cross-border health, but generally in a quite a vague way. But really, the pandemic of 2020 brought cross-border health into sharp relief because many times our politicians said, well, this virus knows no borders. The World Health Organization told us this virus knows no borders. But it very quickly became apparent that indeed on the island of Ireland, this virus did know borders and there were borders and that both our political systems were acting uh, independently, it appeared, of each other. And that caused a great deal of concern. And there were many critics across the world of public health saying Ireland should be treated as one epidemiological unit. And surely if it could do it for foot and mouth days, it would be possible to do it for public health. So there was a lot of conversation going on around um, cooperation. To what extent could cooperation exist? To what extent indeed should it exist? And should we just perhaps say, well, actually, we should just get on with doing our own thing. So I think it brought the whole idea of how much collaboration we had in the area of health into focus in a way that it hadn't been before. And I think when it was under the microscope, uh, people were quite alarmed. They were quite shocked by the levels of cooperation that actually existed. So there was a feeling that there would be um, good channels of cooperation, regular meetings, sharing of data, and it very quickly became apparent that in fact that was not the case and that North and South were largely acting as separate jurisdictions. Now I think it is worth saying that when the, the pandemic hit this island, the North government had just been restored after a three-year hiatus, so they were almost just getting back into being comfortable in government when this struck. Um, and I think that had an impact because they were quite fragile, relationships were delicate. And in the bigger context, the, the Anglo-Irish relations were probably the worst that they'd been in a decade because of the fractious nature of Brexit, because of a breakdown of trust. And so the, the background noise wasn't great in terms of cooperation to start with. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say. I also think it's worth saying that whilst it's easy to be critical, I think we're the only place in the world that has a five-party coalition and five parties sitting together trying to govern. So we often very much focus on the DUP and Sinn Féin, but it is important to say that it's a five-party coalition. So watching it, I think the public were very afraid, very uncertain, looked across the world and became very alarmed. 
And this really was a time for the government in the north to step up to the plate. They'd been missing in action for three years. We really wanted to see a, a very strong public health message, but a message that said, we are all here working for you. And that appeared to be working at the start. All the signs were good. They talked about following the science. We were very often told about following the science. When asked about cooperation, um, yes, there was a nod towards cooperation, not much more than that. Um, but basically in the North, it fell apart very quickly when it was apparent that the Republic of Ireland appeared to be moving faster than us. So when they closed schools, um, uh, very, I think 24 hours after an agreement that we wouldn't, the Deputy First Minister stepped out and said, no, actually, we should. This is really not the way to go. And that whole idea then of uh, a cabinet, the whole idea of a consensual government fell apart in front of our very eyes. And I think that did cause a great deal of consternation because very quickly, uh, people who may have been seduced into the idea that we did have a government that could represent us all and do what was best, set aside their tribal identities, set aside constitutional politics. Maybe it wasn't that surprising to find that even in the face of a global health emergency, constitutional issues were very much to the fore and that the lead partners in our government were nodding towards their perspective um, areas. So we had the DUP following slavishly almost the government in London, and we had Sinn Féin looking to see what was happening in the Republic of Ireland and how in step or out of step they were. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Deirdre, for that overview. And a lot of those points um, we will come back to in the course of our conversation. Just just briefly, um, you wrote the article uh, a few months ago, it was published in January. And of course, you know, in that period, it's been quite dramatic. We had the third wave of, of COVID, which had a major impact both north and south. Um, we've obviously had the famous UK variant, um, renewed lockdowns, but also on the bright side, um, the success of the vaccination programmes and particularly in, in the north. And I suppose it's been rather odd. There's been kind of swings and roundabouts. You know, at one period, it looks as if the problems have been worse in the, worse in the south. Other times it looks to be worse in the north. And, you know, we'll see overall, I suppose, at the end. But would you say, on the, specifically on the point of cooperation, would you say things have got better or stayed much the same in, in the past, you know, three or four months? My assessment of it is it stayed largely the same. So we had a memorandum of understanding signed in March which set out areas for cooperation, that there would be collaboration, that the health ministers would speak to each other. And at the time, because we were really just starting to experience this pandemic, that seemed to be extremely significant. And a lot of people took a great deal of comfort in that reassurance that there would be high levels of cooperation. I don't believe they really ever materialised in any significant way. And we just continued along doing what we'd been doing before. I think the big difference in the North was as things settled down and there was a realisation amongst the public that this we were in this for the long term, that this wasn't going to be over by July or August. Then the fixation on this short term, let's look and see how the South are doing. Let's look and see how we're doing in comparison to everyone else. That focus moved away as we began to think about how long are we going to be in this lockdown? Is this our last lockdown? Can we actually survive another lockdown? So our focus became very much on the devolved region. And I think people began to look at other devolved regions. And as Scotland and Wales in particular started to say, well, that's fine. London are doing their own thing. England are doing their own thing. 
But we are very um, comfortable in the fact that we are moving at a pace that is different from the other regions, but is right for us. And again, because I think people started to have that confidence within the devolved institutions and the decision making, there was much less of a focus of saying, um, where are we in relation to the South? It was more about how is our system working? How are our numbers working? Is the strategy that we have developed working? Um, now, of course, politically, and it may have been inevitable, our politi political uh, leaders, so our first minister, couldn't really talk about the success of our vaccination programme without pointing to the Republic of Ireland and saying, and look how much better ours is than theirs. But actually, you could have gone back and said, we're not comparing like with like. There are different gaps between vaccinations, but it seemed churlish. But there was always a bit of point going for the politics of it. But I think in terms of policy, because people realised that this was not going to disappear in the short term, there was much less of a focus on levels of cooperation and almost an acceptance that there wasn't going to be high level cooperation, that cooperation would exist in whatever way it did exist. And even the people who had initially been calling for it and saying how important it was, their voices faded. Um, and there, there seemed to be much less interest in levels of cooperation. It was basically an idea of we need to get on with this. We need to get on with this ourselves. And our governments need to do whatever they have to do to make sure we get out of this as quickly as possible. That's very interesting, Deirdre. Um, and I suppose, you know, in due course, when the, the history of the pandemic comes to be written, it'll be possible, A, to, to look and see if comparisons you know, show up any major differences in outcomes between North and South. And secondly, we'd be able to think, I suppose, over about whether, you know, greater cooperation would in the end have made much of a difference in, in either case. Moving now to you, Anne, and to you know, moving away from COVID into the sort of the broader, um, the broader issue of cooperation. I mean, what struck me in reading your comment on Deirdre's paper and in Deirdre's paper itself, that you both see that there are really quite major problems in both health services in how they operate and quite similar problems in, in many cases. Um, and you make the point that outcomes are, are not great, frankly, either North or, or South. I mean, Anne, maybe you might like to talk a little about that. I mean, what are the main issues and difficulties facing the, the health services as you as you see it? Yeah, this, I think Deirdre's paper really offered an opportunity to, again, try to compare the systems. And of course, it was against that COVID backdrop, the political situation in the North, uh, Brexit, and a very unstable political situation in Ireland, you know, very unusual uh, set of arrangements. So I think that was the first thing that was really striking. So I suppose then when you're trying to, to kind of pair back and compare the two systems, you know, besides all that kind of political uh, noise, if you like. I think the thing that always comes back to people analysing the, the public health system in the Republic of Ireland is our lack of access to primary health care uh, free at the point of delivery. Um, and I know it sounds often when people critique um, the lack of that access, uh, it's like we're comparing it with some idyllic uh, open access, 24 hour, you know, no delays, no waiting lists, no waiting times. And I don't think we are usually, but there's a kind of an ideology and, you know, this goes right back, I suppose, in history, um, you know, to when Noel Brown tried to introduce some kind of maternal and newborn and infant healthcare and was 
was stopped in our very you know conservative religious and conservative political system at the time fearing all sorts of dangerous things you know like family care and contraception and all of that in the 1950s but I think nowadays we're really a notable exception you know to the idea that if primary care being free so that there would be no cost deterrent um, is you know broadly accepted for you know decades and we don't have that and we instead we have all these in the republic these you know convoluted arrangements whereby some people have this and some other people have something else and um you know so i suppose that remains the biggest difference and like i worked and lived in london in the 90s uh, attending a gp uh, in london working within the health and social care system so you know i knew it wasn't perfect there and there were you know all the kind of attempts to to make it somewhat more efficient at that stage you know i know i mentioned it um in the the response you know, Slauncha Care, everybody has hopefully heard about the 10-year strategy uh, for health reform in Ireland. And despite all the reforms to bring about the HSE, the Health Service Executive, all these other arrangements, nothing has really tackled uh, that kind of lack of free primary care and also the two-tier system, the public and private systems coexisting. And I think what was interesting for those following the general election uh, in, you know, early 2000, which you know, didn't get the government until much later that year, uh, despite the pandemic, was, you know, each government party when they were campaigning for the February 2020 election, all said, I'm going to implement launch care. And the other, no, I am. No, I am. I'll do it quicker. In a way, it was a no, it was a no brainer. Uh, there was a 10 year, there is a 10 year plan. It was, you know, agreed in a cross party way, which is very unusual here as well as everywhere else. Um, in 2017, really only started getting implemented in 2019. So, you know, it's agreed across parties. It will result eventually in free primary care, like general practice visits and things like that for all the population with a very slow start. Uh, well, there was a start in 2015, bringing in under six and over 70s for a GP visit. But it's all these kind of ad hoc pieces that kind of frustrate people. So, I, you know, it's a long way off. I think, you know, there were then plans to extend that. Uh, the former minister before he was replaced in, in the middle of last year was talking about, you know, bringing that up to the 12 year olds. Um, but I suppose the major issue, back to your question, Rory, is that the limited capacity in both systems. So I think our own Department of Health said we need to increase primary care and general practice and practice nurse capacity by almost 50% by 2030 if we if we were able, if we wanted to deliver that kind of primary care. And even for that small cohort who got additional care, the under, under sixes, you know, visits increased by 25% uh, following implementation of that. So you know, that's that's natural. And you do want people to seek out primary care. You know, there's been a recent study that showed the emergency department attendances for those younger uh, under sixes didn't fall. You might expect, you know, things to balance out. So it looks like there is unmet demand. We know that. So growing that service will just capture that demand rather than take it from somewhere else in the system. Yes, no, no, that's no very interesting. Um, and this big difference, as you say, between you know how people pay for or or don't pay for their primary care is clearly a major one, and it has political consequences too, as we'll as we'll talk about in a moment. I mean, just I mean, Deirdre, I, I was quite struck, you know, as, as as I said earlier, 
by the fact that you say that both of you kind of say that outcomes, you know, compared in, in both systems are not very good. And also, you know, that there's a, in particular, we can see there are big, big issues with waiting lists in both North and South. And the idea that the North could absorb the South's um, overspill, as it were, or vice versa, uh, probably not very realistic. I mean, for you, I mean, what are the, if you have to pick out any particular areas, I mean, one or two, which would you say are the biggest problems we share? I think Anne's points are very well made. I think the issue in terms of health is that when an idea gets into the national psyche, it's very difficult to dislodge it. And here the NHS is apparently, well, it was said to be in Britain the closest thing they had to a religion. It's definitely viewed as the jewel in the crown. And so any critique of the National Health Service is slightly frowned upon because people think you're criticising the people who work in the National Health Service who are generally fairly poorly paid and it seems to be unfair and you wouldn't get a lot of support for it. But the reality is when you try to look at the two systems and say, well, look, forget about the perceived wisdom and the perceived wisdom in the North is very much that our system is superior to that in the South. And when there are increasing conversations about comparisons people will talk very assuredly about the fact that we have a much better system. But I think the reality is we have a lack of information that allows us to actually look at health outcomes and say, could we sit these two systems side by side and talk with authority about health outcomes uh, and spending? Because it is extraordinarily difficult to extrapolate from the data we have what has been spent, when it is being spent, what exactly it's been spent on. So that's the first thing I would say. Of course, it'd be impossible to talk about health policy here without talking about waiting lists. And waiting lists in the North have spiralled completely out of control. So I, I think that is a major issue. It's a major issue for our devolved government. And I think more significantly, it's an issue that they appear to have completely lost control of. So if you look at our waiting lists and compared to other devolved regions, our waiting lists are completely out of sync. So, for example, we did some research with the Nuffield Trust and found a healthcare trust, Merseyside in the world, which had 2 million population. So quite similar to Northern Ireland with its 1.8 or 1.9 population. They had 10 people on the waiting list for more than a year, which caused almost a crisis in their healthcare trust. They knew the names of these people and they were determined to do something about them. The comparator in Northern Ireland was 120,000 people waiting for longer than a year. So I think those figures give you an idea of how out of sync we are. And I think the reality is, as you look back, the devolved government essentially just simply lost control and decided to let it go. So if we were looking at comparatives in terms of policy, the first thing to, put, to say about Northern Ireland policy is, when we talk about a healthcare system that's free at the point of delivery, if the expectation is for elective care, that you're waiting five and six years as a norm for orthopedics, then it is not free at the point of delivery. What we actually have by the back door is a two-tier system. So those people who can afford to pay will go to private hospitals and get their procedures done. That could be anywhere in the world or they will go here if it's possible. But it's not just as simple as a two-tier system. There are many people for whom £7,000 for a knee replacement is a huge amount of money, money that they don't have sitting in the bank. But families will come together. They will forego holidays. They will forego the new car. They will sell their car to get their mum that surgery that is life-changing. 
So it is too simplistic to talk about one system free at the point of delivery and the other not. That's the first thing I would say. And the second point I would make is the waiting lists in Northern Ireland have not only spiralled out of control, particularly in the last eight years, but more significantly, we have absolutely no strategy, no plan, no funding to deal with that issue. And so what we will find is every quarter we will get new statistics saying, oh, the waiting lists have increased. And we will get a wringing of hands, a shock of horror, a ministerial statement of disappointment. Um, And it's as obvious as night follows day that if we don't do something about it, some form of intervention, of course, these waiting lists are going to continue to increase. That's interesting. And in terms of outcomes, too, I mean, I'd be, you know, on another occasion, maybe interested to hear more about how things are for people with different kinds of conditions. Or, you know, I know that in the South, we believe, I think, that we have done well in terms of uh, addressing cancer problems in the last decade or so. But I, I'd be curious to know more about that in, at some point. Just to say, I mean, Anne and Deirdre, you both, as they are quite critical of the current levels of cooperation that, as you say, political declarations, but not maybe followed up particularly vigorously by officials or the health services. And there have been a number of, you know, often mentioned achievements to Altengelven and cancer care and so on. But there seem to be both strategic and operational issues. And indeed, I was really struck um, by this difficulty of comparing the two systems in a very basic way in terms of common uh, statistics. So, I mean, Anne, if you were asked about priorities for improving, you know, North-South cooperation, what are the first things that, you know, the two, the two administrations would actually have to do? Yeah, um, thanks. It's a great question. I think Deirdre has probably uh, said it in her last response, just trying to improve comparable data sets on outcomes, on inputs, on structures. And while that won't achieve better outcomes in itself, it is necessary to do so. I suppose in other fields we see now with the minimum alcohol pricing uh, moves in in the Republic and the concern about obviously border, across border differences in alcohol prices. So I think we see just all the time things being really reactive, you know, that it's just whatever. And obviously COVID was a massive shock to the whole world and to the two systems. So I suppose your very first question to Deirdre, I was thinking what's happened since we both wrote our pieces was, you know, the only focus really on the border is on the levels of infections in the border counties, the travel restrictions being different and what the impacts are. So it's almost that we're just always following a problem. The most uh, pressing need really is for a proactive collaboration. I mean, that sounds so obvious. That's what you're asking about cooperation. Um, I think the structures for that need to be there. Obviously, you know, there's been so much else. And that's why I was I was glad to steal a piece of Deirdre's text to call my response a crowded stage because, you know, health is centre stage because of COVID, but the stage was crowded. And just after we wrote, there was all the fisheries issues. There's obviously trade, all the the ongoing issues that we thought might be solved by now. So really just to prioritise health, to get people working both sides, to collect data, compare data, and just really be more proactive about health, maybe about public health areas. You know, you, you mentioned cancer control, the mental health effects of the pandemic and the lack of services across both sides of the border are massive problems. So, you know, I don't want to suggest we go project by project, though. So it has to be kind of trying to cover the health system. And I am hoping to write more on the outcomes part of, you know, trying to look at the two systems. So uh, Deirdre's article inspired me to do that. 
Great. Very good. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this coming then to into a more political area, I mean, Deirdre was suggesting earlier in the discussion about a united Ireland, you, you tend to get a certain dialogue of the deaf, you might say. I mean, there seems to be, and the opinion polls confirm this, you know, a tremendous level of support for the NHS among both communities in Northern Ireland. And, and it's often cited as a major reason for not wanting to, to see one, uh, see United Ireland. And equally, on the other hand, I say there are some supporters of United Ireland who seem to suggest that, you know, as if simply entering into a, a new state or a unified state uh, would mean that we could, at a stroke, solve all our problems, north and south, at the same time. But of course, you know, Anne has already spoken about Slaunty Care and the slow progress of that. I mean, Deirdre, looking at it, and again, from a non-political viewpoint, what do you think would be the major advantages of a, a single system, if there were one in due course? I suppose to go back a little bit, I think to follow on Anne's point, I, when we're talking about um, cross-border health, there is some confusion about what people are actually talking about. Are you talking about projects on the border? Are you talking about all-island cooperation? And we now have new terminology, all-island healthcare. So I think the first thing to say is when people talk about this, I'm not quite sure what they're talking about. And sometimes it really is project-specific. And of course, there's a difference between cooperation, collaboration, what does working together actually mean? And, and to what extent could you say there is meaningful collaboration in terms of perhaps joint resources? So that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, moving on from that point, I think we really need an audit of what is going on on this island on a collaborative basis. Because even the people who are the clinicians who are working in the system will say to you, I don't know what's going on five miles up the road because our whole system is based around firefighting dealing with a crisis, managing emergencies, particularly around waiting lists. And we don't have the time to look up and out and say, actually, someone is already doing this in Limerick and guess what? They're doing it much better. Or someone is already doing this in Lisbon. Couldn't we have some sharing of expertise, sharing of knowledge? So I think before we get into the politics, we have to understand that culturally our health trusts here in the North are not very good at sharing knowledge and sharing information. So how then we expect that knowledge to get out and permeate throughout the island unless by osmosis? I don't really know. But I do know when you speak to people in the system, it's a great frustration for them. And also that a lot of um, policies are made on the hoof and they appear to be very reactive. There's no long term strategic planning. We know about the importance of prevention. We know about the importance of early intervention. Yet we seem so reluctant to change the way we've always done things. So that's the first thing to say. In terms of the politics of health and the politics of the National Health Service, the upsurge in conversations around a border poll, constitutional change, um, have really pushed health up the agenda, particularly in the North. But with that, you get all sorts of wild assertions about both systems. And of course, those assertions are never challenged. So our Deputy First Minister can step out in front of a microphone and say, well, of course, if we had an all-island system of health, we could deal with the waiting list. Now, what does that mean? In what way would you deal with the waiting list? In what way would it make the situation better? But of course, no journalist is going to ask that question. So we go away with the idea, on the one hand, that an all-island system will be a panacea for all the problems that we have been dealing with. On the other hand, uh, people who are of the unionist tradition, and unions particularly at the moment, who see the need to sell the union, will say, well, but of course we have the NHS and we wouldn't give up the NHS to have a system like the system they have in the Republic of Ireland where you pay for everything, where people who have no money are unable to access healthcare. 
without any reflection on health inequalities in the north that mean that I could get on a bus in Belfast and in a 13 mile radius, my life expectancy would change by 13 years. So it goes back to my point, of course, this is going to become a key political point, because even the most ardent Republican that you might find walking down the Falls Road in Belfast would be loath to criticise the National Health Service. Uh, That's the reality. It's deeply cherished. So if health is going to be part of this discussion, then it's even more important that we have the facts, we have the data, we have an understanding about how both healthcare systems actually work and interact with each other and maybe be in a position to say, well, that may be the perceived wisdom, but it doesn't actually stack up to the facts. Now, health is an extraordinarily complex field. It's not easy to extrapolate, easy to read data, and therefore perceived wisdom is often quite difficult to challenge, particularly if you're writing a short paper or you're on a radio program it's quite difficult to talk about the the complexities of where the spend is going or what outcome looks like or what population health actually looks like. So in terms of collaboration, I think we've got to make a decision to say, in terms of health policy, is someone somewhere going to say, in terms of the population of this whole island in relation to mental health, for example, couldn't we do better? Couldn't we say that um, we're still a relatively small population and we should be aiming for better outcomes? Or do we say we share this island with very two very different jurisdictions? We have two very different healthcare systems that don't really interface with each other. So what could we do within the bounds of those current systems? And I think we really need to start to have those conversations because it's once you start saying... Let's throw all the pieces up in the air and see what it comes out like when they hit the floor. People become so anxious and and, and worried and saying, actually, let's just leave well alone. We know it's not great, but it could always be worse. That's the case in many aspects of life. I mean, we're we're coming to a, a close now, but maybe Anne, just very very briefly. I mean, Deirdre, you know, has illustrated very clearly both in the in the article and today just, you know, how big the issues are about cooperation. And in a way, one finds myself asking, well, you know, if there were to be an attempt to put together an all-island system, it would face many of the same problems that we're, or all the same problems that we're grappling with at the moment, both North and South separately. So I suppose, do you see any specific, I mean, this is not be political again, but do you see any specific benefit for the moment in thinking beyond enhanced cooperation? I mean, would there be potential advantages to a single system or would it depend entirely on what that single system actually happened to be? I think it is, I suppose, really hard to imagine a single system. But and I suppose for many reasons, things are moving in the wrong direction. Uh, So I just noted that the private health insurance subscriptions in Ireland are up to 2.3 million of the population uh, being covered by private health insurance, the highest level since 2008. So despite COVID and obviously the all the unemployment that ensued, The rallying round, you could say, of the public health system in Ireland, more and more people are signing up to private health insurance. So I suppose I'd be fairly pessimistic about any single system. We're moving further and further away from kind of the Slauncher Care uh, direction. I think if Slauncher Care could could move more quickly and if we could sort out that free at the point of uh, care 
primary care, because of course we, we have that for secondary care, but it's just not available as with waiting lists uh, north and south of the border. So I really feel with COVID, with the knock-on effects on the, on the ordinary healthcare problems in the, in the system, really a lot of concern about cancers, you know, heart disease, all the things that have gone undetected. It's really difficult. I mean, obviously we're coming out of this wave, but it has been really difficult for the health systems uh, north and south of the border to absorb. Well, they couldn't absorb the COVID. They didn't have the capacity, didn't have the ICU beds the health service uh, infrastructure, the workforce. So, you know, we've really gone gone hugely backwards, I suppose, in, in 14 months. So I think we're probably in the Republic sticking our heads in the sand, hoping to get out of this COVID wave, still really worried about lots of things. Uh, vaccination, as you mentioned, you're going quite slowly, really, compared to uh, our global peers and really I, I wouldn't see any hope really but I know that's not what you asked you said what how would it help or what would it look like but it's just really hard to imagine no well it's I mean it's extremely important to start these conversations as you were both saying on the basis of realism and fact and, and not so much of myth and, and aspiration a final word for you Deirdre if, if you want one I mean is there any particular thing that you haven't had a chance to say a point you'd like to make now I don't know if it, it's relevant or if it's part of this conversation, but following on from the paper, I'm doing some work with the Irish government through the Shared Islands Initiative. Um, and that is a small scoping study, which I will be in touch with Anne very soon about. But I've spoken to almost 50 people who are involved in health care in mostly the north, but also the south, but also policymakers. And I suppose at a very early stage, I can say that People are very upbeat and optimistic about the possibilities for collaboration. Um, there's no one saying that we shouldn't do it, um, but they do want a better understanding of where would the, the best areas for cooperation and collaboration be. They are quite critical of both governments who feel that they have ticked the box, but really haven't explored this in any meaningful way. Feel that perhaps the shared island units is a possibility to do something that hasn't been done before, to actually say, what are the possibilities? Identify the key issues, because this, in a way, sits outside government. So it won't be coming from the Department of Health. It won't be coming from our Department of Health. It gives us an opportunity to re-examine it or maybe look at it through a different lens. Um, so, for example, we've had the successes that we talk about, the children's heart surgery and the cancer services. Would it be possible to do the same, for example, for kidney dialysis? Would it be possible to do the same for perinatal mental health? Would it be possible to do the same for mental health? The reality is we don't actually know. And those people who have been involved in successful collaboration to date talk about the importance of the individual pushing something that they deeply, deeply believe in. And that's how it happened. They wouldn't say that it was something that both governments came to a realisation that it would be better to do it. They actually talked about individuals pushing it. So I think uh, we are in a positive place and we may now actually start to look at this in a slightly different way, which says, what can we do that improves the outcomes for the whole population? Well, thank you very much, Deirdre. That's very positive. I had said it was the last word, but I see that Anne wants to say something else before, before closing. 
Yeah, thanks. Just maybe to end on a positive note as well, because obviously COVID really has affected, you know, people's lives and the health system and the economy and, and all else. But I suppose what it also has enabled is very quick, responsive action and change within the health system. So we carried out some research on how doctors uh, felt about the health system while in the throes of COVID in the first wave in the Republic. And they really felt that the system was adaptive, responsive, whereas a year before everybody was emigrating who we asked, how, how do you feel about the system? So there was definitely that idea that if there's an issue, you can you can reconfigure your services very quickly. And Sarah Burke and colleagues in Trinity are, are looking at that now to see what changes we made related to COVID could be brought forward to enhance and maybe speed up the implementation of Slauncher Care. So I think that kind of uh, very quick response and, you know, like you said about the NHS in the North, very positive uh, feelings towards the public health system uh, in the Republic related to the responses people got when either they were ill or somebody was ill or keeping them out of hospital if possible. Well, thank you. It's good to end on a, on a positive note. Absolutely. It's clear that there's a great deal of work to be done on this. I'm delighted to hear, Deirdre, that you are embarking on more work. And Anne, it's also great that uh, that you're engaged in, in, in this as well. Let's hope we can all get back together again in, in, a, in a year or two and, and see where we are. But just thank you so much for an illuminating conversation. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Island Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this uh, podcast, uh, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aaronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.